Welcome to Talking Bach, a podcast by Bach Academy Australia. My name is Madeline Easton and I am the Artistic Director of Bach Academy Australia. This podcast series will accompany each of our concert series throughout the year. The topic of discussion for our upcoming concert series is In Bach's Orbit. The idea for this podcast season is to whet your appetite for the wonderful music of Bach you will hear and to also really deepen and enrich your knowledge of the key figures in Bach's life who guided him and influenced him both musically and personally. We explore why and how a true genius becomes a true genius, a question many artists and scholars have contemplated and cannot be answered without debating the argument of nature versus nurture. My guest today is a name many who revere Bach will know. He is none other than Professor Peter Wolny. Professor Wolny is a German musicologist, a Bach scholar who has contributed to and served the Bach Archive Leipzig since 1993 and as its director from 2014. Professor Wolny has contributed to the Neue Bach Ausgabe and has been an editor of Karl Philipp Emanuel Bach, The Complete Works. He has been professor at the University of Leipzig and teaches internationally. He received an honorary doctorate from the University of Uppsala and is considered one of the foremost experts of Johann Sebastian Bach's music worldwide. Peter, hello. It's so nice to see you and it's so nice to talk to you. Welcome to our podcast, Talking Bach. Well, thank you for having me, Midlin. I really enjoy it. Thank you so much. I know you're a very busy man, um, but there's so much to talk about um, with this particular, I think, uh, this concert series that we have going on. And uh, But also, you know, what an amazing life you've had all sort of around, in and around the Bach family. And tell me about, you know, tell me about what it's like in Leipzig right now. And what's happening at the Bach Archive? Well, um, we are very happy that, um, I mean, the, the strict regulations concerning the corona pandemic um, have been over, at least for, for the summer. And we had a very successful Bach festival in June. Uh, in July, we had, for the first time in, in four years, the international Bach competition which uh, also went very well. And well, now we are, we are busy uh, pursuing our research projects and hope that the autumn and, and winter um, won't be too terrible. Yeah, I understand because uh, right now here in Australia, we're in the middle of winter and we've had a terrible time with, uh, with COVID. We've just, we've just passed the peak of a very nasty third wave. Uh, mm. And putting on a concert or anything is so difficult because uh, we have these seven-day isolation rules. So if you get it, you have to isolate for seven days, which of course is a good thing. But it makes finding artists and things just so terribly difficult. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. Yeah, um, but I'm I'm thrilled to hear that the, the Bach Festival went well again. So tell me about the books that you've written, this fantastic book on 17th and 18th century um, Protestant music making. And how do you think that's influenced the work of Johann Sebastian Bach? I mean, the, the uh, Lutheran music culture in central Germany in the 17th century. Well, um, I think that uh, we can understand Bach's music only if we take a really close look 
at everything that was happening around him and before him. Because um, all we know about Bach, especially the young Bach, is that he had such a keen interest in all sorts of music and, and that he really went through troubles uh, uh, accessing uh, unknown repertoires to him, for example, French music and Italian music. So um, I think we have to uh, imagine him as a teenager um, looking out for everything that was interesting to him. Yes, I can imagine that with such a fertile, curious mind, he would have been constantly searching for inspiration and, you know, mm -hmm. frantically looking for, for something that he could draw on to feed his his own creativity, I guess. And and when I sort of uh, think about Bach's family, uh, in particular, Johann Christoph Bach, uh, he sort of did attach himself to this man. And, you know, even he acknowledged uh, that, you know, that he, Johann Christoph was, was the first profound musical Bach. He must have loved discovering or getting to better to know his relative and his music. Yes, um, I mean, they, they, they must have known each other uh, when Bach was still living in Eisenach. You know, Christoph Bach was the famous organist of the main church in Eisenach, the Organkirche. Um, and um, there was no way that, that they didn't meet. Uh, I mean, Johann Christoph was part of the family, and 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 we know that uh, Johann Christoph Bach and and Bach's father Johann Ambrosius worked closely together, and um, and uh, one performance they did together even made it into the Eisenach Town Chronicle, which is um, very unusual for a music performance uh, of the day. So I I assume that that Bach knew and admired his distant uh, cousin. And um, I also think that later, when, when Bach himself tried to, um, tried to define his position within the family and within music history in general, that he saw in Johann Christoph Bach some sort of, well, I use the biblical term, prefiguration of himself. Uh, I mean, all the the uh, the few notes we have that, that come directly from Bach point into this direction that he says, this one, this Johann Christoph, is the great composer of our family in the past, implying that he himself, I, jo Johann Sebastian, I am the, the great master right now in the 18th century. So, so he was constantly looking back and comparing him, himself to his... His cousin, and and also we know that he um, in the 1730s and 40s he collected as many compositions as he could from his um, uh, ancestor and uh, performed them in Leipzig in, in in the two main churches, which also is very unusual unusual considering the fact that older music, 17th century music, was completely out of fashion. Uh, around 1740, but, but Bach went back to this um, particular composer and, and continued to perform his music. That's just absolutely remarkable, isn't it? Well, I, yeah. I'm, yeah, well, for me personally, I could not conceive of a program of music titled In Bach's Orbit without including this particular member of the Bach family. Um, and I have to say, when I heard, first heard the opening chords of his Lamento, I just thought, what on earth is this? This is truly remarkable music. 
and mm. uh, it's not often performed, certainly not here in Australia, actually. So I'm so, so, so pleased to be able to include this as the opening of this concert, you know, because Johann Christoph was the uh, probably the first of the people to really influence him, I, I suspect. Mm. Who knows? But yeah, uh, it's just, it's wonderful music. I can't wait to perform more of it, actually, in subsequent years. <laughs> What's your take on the whole concept of Bach's nature, his genetics, if you like, but also the nurturing of those he had around him, but also not, not just in his early life, but throughout his life. What's your take on that? Well, I think it's pretty obvious when you take a look at the Bach family in general, that the, uh, the love for music and the talent to pursue a musical career was um, within their genes. And, and I think it's, it's Bach's, um, I don't know how to phrase it now, maybe, uh, genetic predisposition was that, that he that he had the uh, capability of of uh, doing a lot in music. You know, with these with these um, inherited talents, um, it's it's a case they 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 are like a sleeping capital in your brain, and 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 they need to be uh, uh, well nurtured. They they need to be developed. Um, uh, so the 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 musical um, uh, environment that Bach grew up in was extremely important for him, uh, so that he could develop his musical talents that, that were, so, so to speak, sleeping in his in his genes. So so both is very important, but I think. Um, uh, uh, it is it is first of all the the. Uh, the predisposition uh, that he had an ear, so to speak, for music, and that his interests would would uh, naturally well get active when, when he when he heard music, when he played music, and so on. Yeah, no, I I really I understand that very much. My mind is turning to also Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart in the same kind of sort of way that you're talking about here. How such a young man could have been born into a family where his father was such a famous and well-known pedagogue and a great musician. And he was placed in the right circumstances with the right people around him with that latent talent in his brain. And all those circumstances just were added up to this incredible mm -hmm. musician. Yeah, it also, I mean, just just uh, an aside, um, it, it worries me um, that particularly in Germany nowadays, music, Play such a little, uh, small role in in the in the the education at in, in schools and so on. I believe that there are many great talents um, among children today, but their um, talents probably will not be developed if they don't have. Um, I mean the. Um, uh, the, the the right environment. So um, I mean, what, one one can say many critical things about the music civilization in Germany in the late seventeenth and early eighteenth century, but what they did achieve is um, that there was a general general love for music, and that there were um, many plenty of opportunities for talented children to explore their talents. That's absolutely true, isn't it? And um, I, I guess we have Luther to thank for, the, for, you know, for rewriting the school curriculum and placing music right at the centre of it. And you're right. Um, it's very, very difficult to get music into schools these days. 
Um, now, when Bach heard Buxtehude when he was 20 years old, what do you think changed in his music? Um, I mean, was that too early to tell in Bach's sort of oeuvre and life? Um, you know, considering that he was only really in Arnstadt and Mühlhausen before then. Um, but what, in your opinion, what do you think um, J.S. learnt from Buxtehude? Because we have included a piece of Buxtehude in this program purely and simply because uh, not not just according to myself, but my other musicians, he had an enormous influence on Bach. I think uh, it doesn't matter that, that Bach was only 20 years old and, and on, a, on a minor position in Arnstadt. Um, the the fact that he went through to Lübeck um, and and uh, I mean traveling to northern Germany um, was not easy at the time. Uh, he went and he stayed for four months. Um, uh, does tell us a lot about about uh, Bach's Bach's interested interest in in uh, getting to know Buxtehude as a person. And as an artist, and also getting to know his compositions, um, what we what we can say is that Bach's uh, way of organ playing and of comp composing for the organ changed completely around 1706. Um, the the treatment of the the pedals um, in a virtuosic manner is something that we see for the first time in the pieces that he composed after his return from Lübeck. And as we also know from later years, when Bach um, went again to the north, uh, to Hamburg in 1720, people admired how he had developed further the art of, of um, virtuosic organ playing. This is something that was not typical in Thuringia, where um, uh, the organists um, uh, had a completely different tradition. They used the pedals only in a very moderate way to to play a, a pedal tone, hold it uh, in the bass for a long time. But they didn't have this this virtuosic treatment of the pedals. So this is something that Bach probably was most interested in, getting to know this way of playing, um, and getting to know the repertoire that Buxtehude and others in the north had composed. At the same time, one can with some certainty say that Bach scheduled his trip to Lübeck in order to be able to listen to two of the greatest uh, vocal works by Buxtehude, the two oratorios he had composed um, on the occasion of the death of the uh, um, uh, emperor and the, the um, in coronation of the successor, um, uh, these two pieces were performed in the Marienkirche in Lübeck in December of uh, of 175, just when when Bach arrived in Lübeck. So um, I think Buxtehude told him that these pieces were going to be performed, and Bach asked for the leave and and went to, to listen to the pieces maybe to even play in the orchestra, maybe as a continuo player and so on. These two magnificent pieces don't survive. We only have the texts, but no, no music. Oh, no. But from the, the <laughs> unfortunately, oh, but from the two printed textbooks we have, they, they not only contain the libretto, but they also contain some information about the instrumentation and about the musical style, it says, well, now comes the Ritonello with 25 violins and so on. So it, it must have been a spectacular piece of 
music the the second one and 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 um then one can also guess um two pieces end with magnificent chacons uh, wow. where where all the instruments uh, were, were involved in all the voices so so these these two sacred oratorios um probably resembled uh, the style of a French opera with the, the, the at, at least the French style and, and closing with these great ostinato pieces, but but also incorporated everything that was um, fashionable, also from Italy, from Germany and France. So so these two pieces must have been something that that Bach was very interested in, and um, an echo of this visit to to Lübeck is probably. The uh, town council election cantata that he composed in uh, in, in Mühlhausen, "Gott ist mein König." With, with I know it well. Yes. Four different uh, groups of of uh, voices and instruments. So this may be something that uh, that resembles the pieces composed by by Buxtehude. That's fascinating. I did not know that. That's amazing to hear, actually. I am not an organist, obviously, I'm a violinist, um, but I can hear uh, in Bach's, uh, you know, passicalias and toccatas for organ and harpsichord, some of the, the mm. shapes and the structures of some of Buxtehude's works. That's my only personal observation. You obviously know them much, much better than I do. Let's move on to talk about Telemann and even Pachelbel, and they were also in mm. Bach's orbit. Um, so how did they influence Bach, in your opinion? Well, I, I start with Pachelbel, the older one. Um, yeah. um, Bach probably didn't meet him personally, but Pachelbel was the teacher of Bach's older brother, this other Johann Christoph Bach, yes. organist in Ordruf. Uh, and, and you know that, that Bach um, uh, moved to him when, when his parents had died uh, in 1695. This Johann Christoph Bach in Ordruf, uh, who taught Bach, uh, the, the fundamentals of playing the keyboard was a keen admirer of Pachelbel and um, well Pachelbel's style of playing the harpsichord and the organ is not so much uh, emphasizing uh, mere virtuosity but what Pachelbel featured in his type of playing and composing is a cantabile style of playing uh, something that people in the 17th century did not believe to be possible but mm -hmm. but um, you know finding melodies and technique of fingering uh, so that so that this cantabile quality uh, would emerge on on the keyboard instruments and this is something uh, we know that Bach's older brother Johann Christoph Bach actually cultivated and and this is something that that we also see in Bach if you think of the two and three part inventions mm -hmm. that Bach composed in Curtin, um, where the, the title says, these pieces are for young students so that they learn how to play in a cantabile fashion, a contrapuntal piece on the keyboard. So this actually tells you a lot. I mean, it's, it's um, I, would, I would describe Pachelbel's style of composing and of playing. I mean, it's not, now against the North German school, but mm. but but it's yeah. it's a very intellectual way of of playing, and and you need to prepare your mind so that you can treat a keyboard instrument 
um, in the same way as, as you would play on a violin. That's absolutely fascinating. When I hear Pachel's, I must say it properly, Pachelbe's music, um, I I think vocal music, and um, I've been listening a lot to his motets, those beautiful choral mm. motets, um, mm. and all sorts of other music. And this is why I wanted to include this particular piece of Pachelbel um, in this program, because it, a lot of Pachelbel's music is not known here in Australia. And I guarantee you, probably worldwide, the minute you say Pachelbel, you think the canon. And everyone will probably assume yeah. that's what we mm -hmm. will be playing. But no, 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 no. And I strongly strongly believe that that the music of Bachelbel has had a, a, quite a big influence on Bach and you've articulated it mm. so brilliantly because you know he he may not have met him but you know he he was definitely around and you know his music it filtered through didn't it absolutely and um i mean the 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 canon for three violins um a piece that probably most music lovers know is not a bad example of of uh, of his composing style because here the um the intellectual challenge is to compose a perfect canon for three voices but in a way that you that you are overwhelmed by the by the melody by by the sheer beauty of of the sound and this combination of of thinking how you can write in a melodious way and at the same time uh, keep all the um, the requirements for for contrapuntal setting is something um, that also applies to most pieces by J.S. Bach. I was just thinking exactly that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, it's the order of the mind, which is it's ever present in Johann Sebastian's music, isn't it? But um... absolutely. What I've discovered mm -hmm. about speaking to sort of to music lovers and concert goers here in Australia, they are overwhelmed by the sheer beauty of the music they hear, but they have not the slightest clue at the absolute brilliant order and structure and mathematical perfection that underlies it all. And when Absolutely. you tell them that it's full of this, then they can't believe mm. it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, jumping to Telemann. Uh, Georg Philipp Telemann um, was working uh, between 1708 and 1712 in Eisenach as a concertmaster, later as Kapellmeister. Um, so he was in the close vicinity of J.S. Bach. And we know from a remark by Bach's son, Carl Philipp Emanuel, uh, that his father and Telemann um, visited each other uh, frequently that they had a very close friendship. Um, it must have been quite close because um, Bach asked Telemann to be the godfather of Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach in 1714 when Telemann was already Kapellmeister in Frankfurt. So he was very far removed, but, but he asked Telemann to come to Weimar um, which he did. So, so there must have been a, a close relationship in these early years. I believe that we have um, one example of their musical discussions in 1714 and 1715. Telemann in Frankfurt uh, composed a cycle of cantatas for the court of Eisenach. 
they had the special arrangement. Telemann left in 1712, but but he had a special contract that um, I think every other year he was asked to to deliver uh, an annual cycle of cantatas to Eisenach. So this happened in 1714, and of course these dukes in central Germany were all very interested in culture and very jealous that no one else should have. Um, access to the repertoires that they liked. So the the texts that were actually especially written for Telemann uh, to compose, it's a cycle by the um, Hamburg theologian Erdmann Neumeister. Ah, yes, yes. Must, must have been top secret. And we can assume that the Telemann was asked to, to keep these texts and show them to no one. And also, we know from the contract um, Telemann was not allowed for two years to communicate the, the pieces that he composed for Eisenach to anyone else. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but in seven, you know, in 1714, in 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 early December, Bach composed um an Advent cantata, Nun komm der Heiden Heiland. It's mm -hmm. the BWV 61, famous piece starting with the French overture. Yes. And it's Exactly, the, the, the poetry is from the cycle that was given to Telemann and that simultaneously was set by Telemann to music. And Telemann's cycle later on was called the French cycle, der französische Jahrgang, because here Telemann for the first time in music history tried to apply systematically the French style of vocal writing, of instrumental writing to Lutheran cantatas. Now, you, you can imagine that the Tillman must have told Bach about this, about the, the possibilities of doing this. And what Bach did is he, he said, well, let, let's, let's compose one piece simultaneously and, and then we compare it. And Bach composed a French style cantata, French overture, arias with, with dance rhythms, you know, the, the jig and the tenor aria. Absolutely, and, and, yes. And so, so so um, this piece must have been a result of musical discussions between Telemann and Bach around 1714. That's absolutely fantastic. Well, neither of them were very good at keeping secrets, clearly. But what a result to get from it. And actually, you know, you've just, you've just sparked something else off in my mind as well. Um, Speaking of French overture-style cantatas, um, what about the beginning of BWV 20, or Ewigkeit du Donnerwort? Again, yeah. that's an example of a great one. And you, obviously, I've just read about your your um, involvement in this cantata. And thank you mm. so much for bringing that back to Leipzig for us. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very, very special cantata. Yeah, um, one is. of the, the most remarkable pieces. And, and here again, Bach, uh, I mean, he was, when he came to Leipzig in 1723, um, he, um, I mean, everything must have been completely hectic. And his first cycle of cantatas is, you can see that, that it's almost always a compromise. Um, that, that he, he composes a lot, then he uses older cantatas from Weimar. But his second cycle started exactly one year after his, um, his arrival in Leipzig is the completely thought through and well-planned 
artistic plan to, to have a, a complete cycle of cantatas all unified in uh, musically and 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 uh, in terms of texts and, and aesthetics and so on and and Bach must have thought how can I how can I start a cycle uh, in which I would like to demonstrate everything I can do um, and he he chose this this magnificent cantata starting with the French overture and and um, people in the um, in the in this I mean the, the piece was performed in in one of the municipal churches um, so um, the people listening there merchants and and uh, suddenly felt as if they were members of a court uh, listening to to a royal French overture suddenly I mean it must have been an enormous effect that, that, that Bach chose this already somewhat old-fashioned uh, style of a French overture, and and um, and it, it's the most grandiose opening of a of a cantata cycle oh, that you can imagine. I, I know, I, I know every single note of that cantata, and I'm just thinking about the impact of the three oboes right at the beginning. Bam! There you go with the big eternity lines. Um, but not only that, can you imagine how the congregation would have felt hearing that bass recitative basically, you know, scaring them into submission? You must do well, otherwise the hell and the fury, uh, you know, all of that torment will be there for eternity. And oh, and it's just, mm. it's a weird and wonderful but crazy, amazing cantata. I'll never forget performing that in the, uh, it must have been the Nikolai Kirsch back in 2018 when we did the uh, 13 cantatas in three days or something. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was wonderful. Um, but yeah. I have actually performed that cantata here in Australia. I perf we performed at Bach Academy Australia um, in central Sydney, but I also took it out to western Sydney, out to Parramatta, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. a suburb which doesn't really get this kind of music very often. And um, I'm pretty mm. sure it was a first, actually, for Western Sydney to hear that cantata in um, the beautiful newly restored Parramatta Cathedral, which burnt down, unfortunately, in the mm -hmm. 1980s. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I am determined to get this music out into the regions of Australia, just so, you know, it's not just well-off metro Sydney-siders who get to hear it, but I want everyone to be able to hear this music out here. You know, great idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, but um, that's just incredible that that link um that you just talked about with the, with Telemann mm -hmm. being commissioned to write these French overtures. What a result! <laughs> um, so I've chosen the four violin concerto as a bit of a representation of Telemann, and I think it's it's an amazing piece, so effective, it's so simple. Wait, wait, which one? The G major. I think it's number one. A G major. Yeah, mm -hmm. a great piece. I mean, there, there, this is something maybe for for later seasons. There are uh, also pieces in C major and in D major. The C major piece is most remarkable. I mean, from I, I have played. I'm a violinist as well, you know, and I I I played. Um, I think G major and and C major. Um, these are really great pieces. I mean, the the. Um, you need to, as a listener, you need to focus on this very abstract music. Uh, mm. uh, but but then uh, th there are so many interesting things and and unexpected sounds and uh, that result from four violins uh, playing together. Um, it's it's 
these are amazing pieces. I love them a lot. Lastly, I'd like to take us to the world of Vivaldi. Now, I discovered something interesting the other day. Correct me if I am wrong, but is it true that the Duke, um, uh, Duke Leopold of Curtin went to the Netherlands and he came back with a trunk full of music and in this was the uh, the a copy of Vivaldi's Lestro Armonico violin concertos and Bach found this and he studied this and found so much new inspiration is this true did that mm. really happen yeah it's um it's not Leopold it's it's one of the princes from Weimar Johann Ernst okay I got the prince wrong but the story was mm -hmm. right <laughs> The story is right. To put it into a more general picture, all these princes and dukes and, and counts uh, uh, from the courts in central Germany loved to travel to the centers of music. It's also true for Leopold in Kürten. Uh -huh. he, uh, yeah. he traveled to Italy, to Vienna, to England, also to the Netherlands, um, and, and uh, spent a fortune on listening to music, on buying unknown music and, and taking everything back to uh, to Germany. But the same is true for, for the Weimar court. They sent their princes out to, to uh, onto their their grand tours and, and and they bought music and came back with it. Um, it's true that that this Johann Ernst uh, in Weimar went on his tour I think in 1713 and 14. And um, uh, this Johann Ernst was a guy basically only interested in music. He had no other, he, he didn't probably like to look at churches. He didn't like to, to meet other people. He just wanted, wanted to buy music and to hear music. And um, we know these young princes don't travel on their own. They, they have people around them to take care of the money and everything. And, and also have to write letters on a weekly basis back to home. And we know from these letters um, that uh, he must have bought an enormous amount of uh, sheet music. And, and they, they write back, please buy some new bookshelves. There will be a lot of new music coming and, and so on. And they then they send a, a big box uh, in advance. Uh, and this must have been music that the prince bought in Amsterdam. Yes. Um, uh, and, and you know that um, here, Amsterdam is the place where uh, the most modern Italian instrumental pieces were published. Vivaldi published his, his collections there and other composers as well. So the year 1714 is for Bach especially important because for the first time on the big scale, he had access to this new new type of, of Italian composing, the concerto type. The concerto genre was something that was in the air a number of, for a number of years um, ahead. There were other Italian composers who did similar things uh, prior to Vivaldi. But what Vivaldi had developed is a combination of simplicity, expression, and balance of, of, of different things. And this was apparently so successful that every composer in Germany, including Bach, basically rethought their way of composing. This is something you can see um, quite well in Bach. Um, 
I ju just try to um, not to do a big lecture on on the change of of musical style, but it's okay. Please seven... do. We're here to learn. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In the late seventeenth century, the major problem of instrumental composition is to produce pieces of uh, some length, and and we always have have uh, problems if we aren't used to this type of music, it's uncommon to us because um, the movements are very short, um, nothing returns, we, we don't have anything to, to hold on. So it's, it's just a, a success, succession of, of, of different musical ideas, sometimes many, many different ideas. But what Vivaldi achieved is a way of organizing musical thought. Mm. With with these ritornellos, so uh, sections that come back, it is so successful to the listener to realize now something is is returning in a different fashion, maybe in a different key or or somewhat varied and so on, and also the succession of of uh, tutti sections and solo sections, organized in a very simple but very effective way, is something that that. Um, must have been a major discovery for for musicians in the early 18th century. And if you think of of Bach's cantatas in Weimar uh, that, that he started to compose in 1714, how you structure an aria, how you write an an, an opening ritornello for instruments that that comes back at various points, basically every aspect of formal organization in the 17th teens and, and, and afterwards, is influenced by the Vivaldi concerto style. That's incredible. Well, just looking at the cantata that we are performing, it begins with a concerto style symphonia, BWV 35, Geist und Ziele. And I think that's hugely influenced by that, with a sort of a concerto beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean th this, is, this is concerto pur because you, you actually get a literal organ concerto with the organ and orchestra. Um, at the beginning and at also at the beginning of the second part. That's right. Um, yeah. uh, and then what what you hear in the in the arias, um, how the the solo voice, the alto voice is treated, everything is influenced by by the concerto style. This is what what you can experience when listening to this piece by Bach is that Bach picks up new ideas that are brought to him, but he always integrates everything into his own personal style. I think the really remarkable feature of his artistic personality is that even in his in his early years, when he was, I don't know, maybe 20 years old, is that he knew what he wanted and that he had such a strong musical personality that everything he composes can be recognized as Bach. And at the same time, he is able to integrate all these um, different elements that he learns, uh, French music, the overture style, and, and the, the French way of, of, of playing with, with, with many ornaments, um, the Italian style with, with the Ritornello uh, structure, concerto style, 
um, and, and many other, other types of composing. And he integrates everything just to create for himself new ways of, of, of organizing his, his, his thoughts. So when listening to Bach, we can always ask ourselves, what does he integrate here from the late 17th century uh, music culture in central Germany, from France, from Italy, and so on. And at the same time, we, we also need to recognize that everything is truly Bach, that he never gives up his, his, his own voice. And uh, we always hear him behind everything he does. I think that's the crux of it, actually. I mean, here we have a composer, as you just said, who assimilated all of these things. But as you said, he never lost himself. He stayed true to himself the whole way through. That takes a very special person and artist. And despite all of the personal challenges that he faced along the way as well, he could easily have had to adapt. Of course, he adapted. But he, yeah, like you said, he never lost himself. And that personality shone through the whole time. And I, I think that's a wonderful sort of summation of everything I've been trying to achieve with uh, curating this concert series in Bach's orbit, trying to sort of show or just give examples of, of wonderful works of other composers. For example, I'm not actually presenting a Vivaldi concerto. I'm presenting his sacred work, Nisi Dominus, which I think is one of the most spectacular works of choral music ever written. It's beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. Um, but yeah, all of these works by all of these other composers. And then to finish with BWV 35, that wonderful sort of example of how Bach can take other aspects of composers and, but make it better and make it his own. Professor Walney, my deepest thanks and gratitude to you for your valuable time and insights. It's been an, a privilege and honor to speak to you. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It was great fun talking to you. And I wish you a very successful concert season and hope that someday I will be able to listen to your concerts. I have never been in Australia, I have to admit, um, but maybe someday. Well, I really hope you enjoyed that chat just as much as I did. Now, to find out more about Bach Academy Australia, make sure you visit our website, which is www.bachacademyaustralia.com.au. Make sure you spell Academy the German way as well, spelt A-K-A-D-E-M-I-E, staying true to our German roots, of course. On our website, you can find out the details of all our upcoming performances near you, and you can subscribe to our e-newsletter. Also, you can find Bach Academy Australia on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. But make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.